Hi, this is John Breyer with Mainly Matters. And today, as we approach the 20th year anniversary of 9-11, I thought I would talk a little bit about Maine's connection to that terrible day and that uh, national tragedy that turned into a global event that we're still dealing with 20 years later. A lot of people um, may not be aware of just how connected the state of Maine is to 9-11 and what happened on that day. Um, personally, I was in Pensacola, Florida, uh, the morning of 9-11, 20 years ago. And I remember uh, getting a little alert on my computer that a, a, a small private plane had hit one of the World Trade Centers. A little alert came across my screen. I remember looking at it and not not thinking, you know, too much about it other than that was terrible. And then I, I did uh, start to see some video online of, of the smoke coming out of that, uh, that first tower. And then, of course, um, got an alert that a second plane had hit and I put on the television and saw what was going on. Uh, what I did that morning in Pensacola, Florida, is I... After the second tower was hit, um, I I drove. Uh, I had to meet someone, and I I drove out. I did get my handgun and I brought it with me. I, I just didn't know what was going on. And, and Pensacola, obviously, is uh, as many people might know. There's a there's a Navy base here. The Blue Angels are stationed here. Uh, Pensacola Naval Air Station, the home of Navy aviation. So um, one of the things I noticed is that the sky was full of um, jets, uh, Navy jets. So uh, Pensacola Naval Air Station, as probably all the military bases around the country did, um, didn't know what was going on, what the threats might be. So they literally had the, uh, the jets up in the air uh, flying around uh, to defend the, the Navy base if they had to. So I, I called up to, to Maine. Uh, my father was up there and um, living there. At the time, he had just retired. He was a commercial airline pilot. Ironically, he had uh, gone through training years before at Pensacola Naval Air Station and then was stationed at Brunswick Naval Air Station. And then he went to work for many years as a, a commercial pilot flying um, out of the state of Maine for um, executive airlines and Air New England and eventually made it onto the majors and um, was a captain with uh, Continental Airlines. And he had he had just retired. He hadn't actually officially retired, but he's, he had flown his last commercial flight um, just prior to 9-11. So he still had uh, a lot of friends um, in the industry that were still actively flying. That particular day, uh, one of his best friends, Mike Condon, uh, who was also a pilot for Continental Airlines at the time, uh, was flying. Uh, for those of you that, that know Allison's Restaurant, and Kenny Bunkport, that's owned by Mike Condon. So uh, Mike's long since retired as well, um, still runs Allison's. And um, if you stop in there, you might see him and tell him John Breyer said hello. But anyways, on that particular day, Mike was flying and I do recall talking to my father and um, they didn't know where Mike was. You know, all the planes had been grounded. So, um, no one was able to get a hold of Mike. We, we didn't really know what was going on. 
And um, my father was talking with uh, uh, Mike's wife that, that day. She was a um, former flight attendant herself, and no one really knew who he was. We found out later that Mike's, Mike's uh, story of that day was uh, he was he was taxiing when when the first plane hit the uh, World Trade Center. They continued to fly uh, planes. Uh, they thought it was an accident, a small plane. They didn't know what had happened, but uh, they did not stop commercial flights immediately from from flying. And Mike was uh, in Newark uh, that morning, right outside of uh, New York City, uh, flying for Continental, and uh, he was uh, captaining. Uh, I think it was a Boeing 727 full of people. And uh, he said he was literally taxiing out to take off in Newark. He could see the smoke coming out of the uh, World Trade Center, the first building that had been hit. And he watched out the cockpit window as the second plane flew into the Twin Towers. He immediately at that point knew that this was no accident. And... Um, on his own, without any direction, he, he stopped the plane from taxiing and uh, told the flight attendants that if anyone got out of their seat to notify him immediately, he actually announced it to everyone, that they were all to remain in their seats, they were going back to the gate, and he told uh, the flight attendants if any passenger gets up from their seat to notify the cockpit immediately, and he was going to stop the plane on the tarmac and deploy the emergency evacuation chutes. That moment in time, he didn't know if uh, he might have a terrorist on his plane. So um, he taxied it back, and it was some hours later that uh, Mike was able actually to contact people and let, let everyone know that he was okay. We heard about that later that day. Um, I have another a couple of personal connections to, to that terrible day. Um, my younger brother had uh, just finished, uh, graduated uh, college recently. He played uh, four years of Division One hockey for Niagara University. One of his teammates uh, went to work for Morgan Stanley and was in the second tower. And um, I remember talking to my brother various times that day. They, they didn't know what had happened to him. They were unable to reach him. You know, all cell, all cell phone stopped working that day because everything got overloaded. So... Uh, we later found out uh, late that night that uh, that particular person, he had been in his building in the second tower in his office. He heard the first plane hit the other tower and he felt the explosion and he went to the window of his building and saw all the smoke and he on his own decided to evacuate and to not use the elevators. And he took the stairs down many, many, many flights um, before the order had come out to actually evacuate his, the building. He, he did it on his own. And there was other people, he said, uh, going down the stairs as well. But he made it down to the bottom, got out of the building, and uh, said he was about 150 yards away from the building when he heard the noise and looked up over his shoulder and saw the second plane fly into the building that he had just left. Unfortunately for everyone on the, on those planes, they all, they all passed away. Um, as we know, one of the passengers on the second plane was Ace Bailey. Ace uh, was a hockey player, professional hockey player. He had played for the Boston Bruins years before. Um, as a matter of fact, in the late 70s, uh, my father was flying the Boston Bruins to New York from Boston on a uh, charter flight 
to play a game and um, he passed a napkin back and all the players signed it and the coaches signed it and and uh, one of the people that, that signed that napkin which we still have was Ace Bailey but as Ace got older he went on to become a uh, scout for the Los Angeles Kings NHL hockey team and um, his son Todd Bailey had played hockey with my brother at prep school at Salisbury um, in Connecticut, a prep school before they went off to college. So my brother knew Todd, remained friends with him, and Ace was kind enough to uh, get my brother quite a bit of Wayne Gretzky memorabilia over the years because Wayne Gretzky was playing for the Los Angeles Kings back then. And so Ace got my brother some autographed sticks and shirts and things like that. Unfortunately for Ace, he was flying um, out to Los Angeles that morning to begin uh, working for that season for the Los Angeles Kings. He was a, a scout for them, and, and he perished on that flight. Um, so, yeah, terrible day. But uh, what a lot of people don't know, really, I, I think, and especially as time's gone on, is just how much the state of Maine played a role in that day. So... I found a, an article in the Portland Press-Herald just a couple days ago uh, written by Colin Woodard. And I, th I think it really, he did an excellent job of, of uh, reconstructing the connections that the state of Maine ha had that day. And I thought it would just be interesting to preserve some of that in audio format on this podcast. So I'm going to read from that article. Um, so the headline is, 20 years later, they're haunted by their encounters with 9-11 hijackers. Those who crossed paths with two of the World Trade Center terrorists reflect on what happened in Maine in the hours leading up to the worst attacks on American soil. So the article goes on to say, at half past five, a blue 2001 Nissan Altima pulled into the parking lot of the Comfort Inn on Maine Mall Road in South Portland. It was a cloudy afternoon off the coast. A hurricane was working its way farther out to sea, but the forecast for the next morning, September 11, 2001, was for brilliant, clear skies. Two men were in that car. Muhammad Atta was 37, wiry, five foot seven, an Egyptian trained as an engineer and urban planner with a piercing stare. Housemates and co-workers would later describe him as disciplined, stoic, detail-oriented, and intensely religious. With him was Abdulaziz Al-Omari, a 22-year-old Saudi of similar height and build, with an easy smile and a small scar on his cheek. I am writing this in expectation of the end, which is near, an end that is really a beginning, Olomari said in a videotape statement addressed to the United States that was released a year later by Osama bin Laden. We will get you. We will hum humiliate you. We will never stop forgiving you, he went on to say in that video. Ada entered the lobby and checked them both in, receiving the key for room 233, a second floor double at 543. The room had two queen beds, with gold bedspreads, a floral print above each, sage green carpeting, and a window looking out on the equally nondescript landscape of the main mall area. And so the September 11th attacks began 20 years ago 
on a suburban commercial strip on the fringes of Portland's airport. On the night of the 10th, terrorist movements were largely recorded by machines, security cameras, credit card readers, cell phone towers, and bank computers. The people they encountered, having not taken much notice of two travels, running some errands in a neighborhood sandwiched between highway off-ramps. The morning of the 11th was a different story. The events that shook the world changed the course of history and led to the invasions and occupation of Afghanistan and Iraq shocked everyone old enough to remember them. But some Mainers also had the chilling experience of realizing they had hours before crossed paths with the lead hijacker as he began his mission. 20 years on, we still wonder why he and his henchmen came to our quiet corner of the world to launch the terror. Ada and Alomari likely spent the next two hours in their bedroom, excuse me, in their room, their hotel room, leaving briefly to conduct an ATM transaction in the hotel's lobby. Their luggage included a video cassette for a Boeing 757 flight simulator, pepper spray, Otta's will, which he had drafted in 1996, and his handwritten instructions to his 18 fellow hijackers, copies of which were later found in a rental car and the wreckage of United Flight 93, which crashed in the Pennsylvania field. Purify your heart and clean it from all earthly matters. The time of fun and waste has gone. The time of judgment has arrived. From there you will begin to live the happy life, the infinite paradise, Ada had written. Check all of your items, your bag, your clothes, knives, your will, your IDs, your passport, all your papers. Check your safety before you leave. Make sure that no one is following you, he wrote. Ada and Alomari may indeed have driven up from Boston that afternoon in an effort to obscure their tracks. They had paper tickets to catch an early morning commuter flight from the Portland Jetport to Boston's Logan Airport, where eight of their colleagues would be waiting at the gates to board two Boeing 767s, fully laden with the fuel needed to fly across the continent. By the end of the week, numerous people would come forward claiming to have seen Ada and other hijackers in Portland earlier that summer or in the previous year. The FBI did not find evidence of this. Nor did Portland Police Chief Michael Chitwood, whose officers conducted their own investigation. I wanted to find out if any of these sightings were believable and if there was a terror cell in Portland, as some had claimed, Chitwood said from his Florida retirement home. It got very nasty because I was told I needed to stop investigating and to let the FBI handle it. But at the end of the day, what we found is exactly what they found. There was no terror cell or anything else in Portland. Otta's instructions to his fellow terrorists were to spend their last night going over every aspect of their plan, reading the Al-Tubah chapter of the Quran, and shaving extra hair from their bodies. If he and Alamari followed these orders, they also prayed and reminded themselves to stand fast. God will stand with those who stood fast, the instructions read. Just before 8 p.m., the two left the Comfort Inn 
for two hours of mundane, mundane nighttime errands. They drove down the main mall road to the Pizza Hut, which they probably passed on the way in from the turnpike. Today, a CarMax dealership stands where that Pizza Hut was 20 years ago. On arrival at the Pizza Hut, Otta picked up the receiver of the restaurant's payphone and placed a four-minute call to the Boston hotel room of his close friend and university classmate, Marwan Al-Shahi, who, like Ada, had been trained to fly a 767 into the Twin Towers. After the phone call, Ada and Alamari ordered two pizzas. Five minutes later, the two entered the booth of the fast green ATM in the parking lot of Pizzeria Uno, which they had passed on the way to the Pizza Hut, and withdrew $40. In a still photo taken from the security camera footage of that ATM, Alamari is alternately grinning and grimacing while apparently talking to Ada, who can, be seen, who can be seen behind him, looking over the younger man's right shoulder. After retrieving $40 from the ATM, they drove back to the Pizza Hut, which was only 500 yards away. Ada placed a second call from the payphone there at 8.50 p.m. Alamari most likely picked up the pizzas, the boxes of which will be found in the garbage taken from their hotel room the next day. Before eating, however, Ada decided they needed to go to Walmart. They drove the wrong way, winding up at the northeast terminus of the main mall road where it meets Western Avenue. Western Avenue. They pulled into Jetport Gas on the corner and went inside to ask directions. In the security camera stills released by the FBI, Ada has a scrap of paper in his hand and after interacting with the clerk, he shows that paper to Alomari before they walk out. It was a straight shot to the Scarborough Walmart, two miles down the main mall road. They pulled in six minutes later and left the store 17 minutes after that. According to the official investigation reports, they purchased, for reasons never explained, a six-volt battery converter. A reporter for the New York Post interviewed unnamed store staff a few weeks later, who all claimed that the two had also purchased a box cutter for $1.84, but this report does not appear to have been corroborated elsewhere. They presumably returned to the Comfort Inn, where they kept to themselves throughout the brief time there. Employees, including Laura R. Whale, who at that time was the general manager of the hotel since 1995, would help investigators access the facility for clues in the days that followed while fielding a flood of media inquiries in the weeks thereafter. In 2003, she told the Portland Press-Herald she received little support from the hotel's owners, Sunburst Hospitality Corp., and she eventually suffered a nervous breakdown, checked herself into a psychiatric ward, and was fired allegedly for threatening another employee. It's been the loss of a lifetime, she said at the, at the time. My life up until now is over as I know it. She moved back to her native Ohio, and she died in April of 2018. Ada and Alomari came close to missing their flight the following morning. They had checked out at 5.33 a.m., and clerk Gloria Reserve who passed away in 2015, told investigators that they had not asked for a wake-up call. 
just 27 minutes before U.S. Airways Flight 5930 was due to depart for Boston, they left the hotel. Seven minutes later, they parked the Altima on the first floor of the Jetport parking garage and made their way across the street to the check-in area. All of the other passengers had checked in by then, and Michael Torje, the U.S. Airways agent, was headed outside to have a smoke. I saw these two fellows sticking around and they looked confused, he said. He's now retired and lives in Scarborough. I asked them where they were going and they said Boston. And I said, oh, geez. And I gestured them over to a counter and took their tickets. First class tickets they had, Los Angeles from Boston. You seldom saw paper tickets by then he said, and you seldom saw $2,500 tickets. He asked them for their identification, and he asked them the routine security questions of that era. Has anyone asked you to carry anything on board? Have your bags been out of your sight? Ada looked dour and answered all the questions. Olomari nodded his responses, making Tuohoi wonder whether he understood English. They checked two bags, which if anyone had hand-searched them, would have been found to contain Ada's will and his written instructions, the flight simulator tape, a small knife, and pepper spray. The bags never made the connection to Logan, so their contents were available and would help investigators more quickly assemble the outlines of the attack. The two behaved very differently. Ada throws his license up on the counter and acts like him as, I'm his worst enemy, Tuahei says. Alomari held his license up to his face, and he was smiling. To be honest, I don't think that young fellow knew he was going to die that day. I think he thought he was along for a hijacking like had been done in the past. Tuohoi was a little suspicious. Because they were checking in late, he put a special tag on their bags, indicating to bag handlers not to load them onto the plane until after receiving confirmation that the passengers had boarded. And although there was a new system in place allowing him to issue boarding passes for their connecting flight on American Airlines from Boston to Los Angeles, Tuohoi elected not to give those to them. I had their boarding cards for American Airlines Flight 11 right there, but I wanted them to have to check in again at Logan, he says. So I told him to go upstairs to gate 11, and Ada looked me in the eye, and he had this look on his face, and he said, they told me one-step check-in. I tried to be diplomatic, but he had this negativity and darkness, Tuahoy says. And I thought, geez, if this guy doesn't look like an Arab terrorist, I don't know who does. But then I slapped myself in my mind, and I said, that's not right to think that way. Just because this guy is crabby at 5.30 in the morning. So I said, listen, Mr. Ada, if you don't get upstairs very quickly, you're going to miss your flight altogether. There were half a dozen flights departing between 6 and 8 a.m. from Portland. Had the terrorists flown the week before, they never would have made it through security in time. But Labor Day had come and gone, and the airport was quieter that morning than it had been for months. In the summertime, every airline and every flight is full, and Delta alone had two 757s parked here overnight in those days. So there were hundreds and hundreds of passengers to process through that one narrow security checkpoint, at one time, Tuohoi adds. But to that day, instead, the lines were completely clear. As U.S. Airways 5930 was a tiny commuter flight, 
operated with a Beechcraft 1900, a twin-engine propeller plane seating just 19 passengers, and this morning there was only eight passengers. Vince Mesner had arrived earlier, leaving his house in Albany Township at 2.30 in the morning to be sure to get there an hour and a half in advance of the flight. A product engineer for Honeywell, he was en route to a three-day company meeting in Cupertina, California. He'd originally been scheduled to fly the American Airlines Flight 11 and switch planes in Los Angeles, but the week before, his travel agent had found an open seat on a direct flight from Boston to San Jose. I would have been toast, Mesner says, if I hadn't changed flights. Security was a breeze. I always carry my Swiss Army knife with me, so I just took it off my belt and put it in the carry-on luggage and went right through, he said, recalling the events from his workshop. Back then, they didn't care if you took a small knife on board. He exited security, turned right, and walked to gate 11, the very last gate in the concourse, to wait for the flight. Brian Jurette and Roger Quirin, Maine State Government Information Technology Managers, were on their way to a technology conference in Los Angeles and had carpooled down to Portland from the Oakland, Maine area, arriving at 5 a.m. They'd also had a late change to their itinerary, flying Delta direct from Boston. We could have easily been on a different Boston to L.A. flight if it had, if it had been cheaper, Garrett says. We were the only Boston to L.A. flight that landed safely that day. They also passed through security in minutes, walked to the gate, and sat down to people watch. A few minutes before boarding, Garrett saw Ada and Alamari approach an attendant at the gate, and at a, actually at another gate, who pointed them to gate 11. After confirming they were in the right place, the two sat down and engaged in conversation with each other. They seemed a bit joined at the hip, Garrett recalls. Mesner boarded early and sat in the middle seats. He watched as Alomari climbed the stairs and bent over to enter the door of the tiny plane. He looked scared, he recalls. I actually remember thinking he might have never flown before. The space between the seats was narrow, and Meisner accidentally bumped Ada with his carry-on bag and apologized. He didn't say a word, and I thought to myself, that poor sucker needs some more coffee or something. Co-pilot Kenneth Anderson, who also served as flight attendant on that flight, closed the aircraft door at 6 a.m. The engines came to life, the chocks were pulled from the wheels, and 10 minutes later, U.S. Airways 5930 was airborne. The Beechcraft pulled up to Logan's Terminal B at 6.45 a.m. Garrett, Quirin, and Mesner departed without looking back, hurrying to make their flights. Anderson later told the investigators that terrorists were the last to leave and did not appear nervous or upset. Anderson believes they smiled at him as they walked to the gate, the agent who interviewed him wrote later. The terrorists proceeded up the jetway stairs through USA Airways, the through the U.S. Airways side of the terminal, across a street and a parking lot, and into the American Airlines side, where they again passed through security. When American Airlines 11 left the runway at 7.59 a.m., Ada and Alamari were seated next to each other in first class, row eight. Among the 90 other people on the aircraft were retirees Robert and Jack Norton of Lubeck, Maine, who were bound to their son's wedding in Santa Barbara, California. 
Atta was at the controls of the 767 when it collided with the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46 a.m., killing everyone on board. Among those killed in the towers was 33-year-old bond trader Stephen Ward of Gorham, Maine, who worked on the 100th floor just above the impact zone. Alsha He flew United Flight 175, another Los Angeles board, Los Angeles bound, 767, into the South Tower at 9.03 a.m. Among the 60 non-terrorists who died on that plane was Portland attorney James Rue, 42, a Bowdoin graduate whose law firm had offices in Maine and Kathmandu, Nepal. A fifth Mainer, Navy Commander Robert Allen Schlegel, 38, of Gray, was killed when American Flight 77 struck the Pentagon where he worked. The official death toll from the attacks that day were 2,996, including the 19 hijackers. Unbeknownst to Garrett and Quirin, air traffic controllers in the U.S. military feared their 767, Delta Flight 1989, had also been hijacked. It had the same profile as the two Boston to LA planes that had just struck the Twin Towers, and it was flying close enough to American Airlines 77 that a message sent from the hijacked aircraft, we have a bomb on board, was mistakenly ascribed to the Delta plane. Military jets scrambled to intercept the 767 over Ohio. At 9.42 a.m., the Federal Aviation Administration ordered all aircraft in U.S. airspace to land, but Delta 1989 had actually received a landing order minutes before. Garrett recalls the aircraft reversing direction and the pilot informing them that they were being diverted to Cleveland because a small rental plane had struck the World Trade Center. Their plane touched down at 9.47 a.m. Garrett says they were kept aboard at the end of the tarmac for a couple of hours. He had left his cell phone with his wife, but fellow passengers began making calls and learning what had happened in New York and Washington. He borrowed a phone to let his family know he was okay, but by then the circuits were overwhelmed. The part I think about most often is my wife and kids and all the time they had not knowing if I was safe, he recalls. FBI and ATF agents surrounded the plane and all the luggage was taken out and inspected by bomb-sniffing dogs. Passengers were taken to an abandoned building and questioned by the FBI. Garrett and Quirin didn't go, get to a hotel until 5 p.m. It wasn't until they were watching television coverage that night that they realized the plot had been led by one of the two men they'd seen at Gate 11 earlier that morning. They called the FBI, which then sent seven agents to the, the hotel they were staying in to begin interviewing them. Meisner's plane was diverted to Chicago O'Hare's airport, where he deplaned normally and rushed the scrum to get a rental car. car. Hours later, he was on the road, starting what would be a two-and-a-half-day trek back to Maine. Everyone I saw on that drive was pretty scared, he recalls. Televisions on in the lobbies, restaurants and bars. People were talking about it, and it was just a very uneasy feeling, he says. America has been so lucky, never having been invaded, and it all seems so safe and secure, but it isn't secure anymore. That's the end of that article, and it's, um, you know, it was 20 years ago, but clearly it shows you the connection that Maine had to that terrible day, and 
um, a day that you know literally changed our country and has affected so many people and led to so much more death and destruction and everything that that's happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. Personally, uh, the reason that that I think um, and other people I've talked to and um, you know people I know that were in commercial aviation back then, like I said, my father and his friends. The reason that we think they they chose to fly, fly out of Portland uh, was simply because it was a smaller airport, and they thought that you know if they could do the one step check in, it would be easier to get through security one time in Portland and not have to do it again um, in in Boston. Uh, that didn't happen, but nonetheless they they got away with it. One has to wonder those check bags uh, that they checked in Portland that had the tags put on them that were not uh, put onto the plane till they make sure that that the passengers associated with those bags were on the plane. The reason they would do that is because they wouldn't want someone checking a bag with like a bomb in it um, onto a plane and then just not getting on the plane. So that's the reason that gate agent put that special tag on that bag um, one has to wonder if they had opened that bag for whatever reason, they would have found the written instructions for all 18 hijackers. They would have found the Boeing 757 videotapes for flight instructions. They would have found the will, Otis will, last will and testament, the knife, the pepper spray. Maybe that would have been averted hard to say. Anyone who's flown out of Portland, uh, international jet port, as I have many times, as many of my friends and family have, uh, when you go upstairs there, and it's a very small little little uh, metal detector, really, that you go through one at a time. So I do, I do remember thinking at the time and, and since that, uh, you know, I walked through the same little space that Ada and Alomari walked through that morning. So definitely a sad time. And it's sad to think about um, Maine's connection that led to so many deaths and and the people that were affected that day. It's been 20 years, and uh, I thought this was a worthy uh, topic to cover on Mainly Matters and to uh, share the article written by Colin Woodward of uh, the Portland Press Herald because it's very well done and and uh, this is a way of preserving that in audio form. So thanks for listening. This is John Breyer with Mainly Matters. I'll be back with a new episode soon and thank you for stopping by. Mm-hmm.